Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. So this week we have a very special vintage episode. We're covering the 1973 crime caper movie The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford as a pair of 1930s conmen who pull off an elaborate scam. Um, it won seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay, and it is also extremely fun. Yes, uh, this was the first classic film I believe I ever saw when I was around 15 years old. Uh, so it has a very special place in my heart. I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm not 100% up on the details, but I have seen it several times, so I know it quite well. We rented this movie from the video store in my hometown called Video Signals. That was the video <laughs> store. Love it. R.I.P. Um, I was sleeping over at my friend Alex's house, and we needed a movie, and I went with my dad to the video store, and he said, oh, you should watch this thing. Robert Redford is so attractive in this movie. And I was like, what? <laughs> Wasn't wrong. Was not wrong. <laughs> For context, my father is like the most heterosexual man alive. And even he recognized that Robert Redford in this movie is just like so beautiful. So he also told me apparently he has three sisters and two of them were twins. And they literally had a framed photograph of Robert Redford on their bedside table in their room. <laughs> I respect that. <laughs> One of them is a lesbian, but this was not public knowledge at that time. Um, and so we watched the movie. It was at my friend's house. The sleepover was taking place. And I, of course, was just like, this is amazing. And also was sort of like, oh, he, he is really cute. And... My dad picked me up the next morning and literally we like opened the front door and he's standing on the, you know, stoop of the house. And he, he like the first words out of his mouth were like, is it Robert Redford cute? And my friend was like, no, I don't think so. And we <laughs> both just looked Philistine. at her. We both just looked at her and we're like, what? I was telling my mom this weekend that we were recording this episode on this movie and I started telling this story and she was like, oh. I remember that story. She was crazy. And I was like, I know. <laughs> Such is the pull of Robert Redford. He is undeniable. As an adult, I think I'm more of a Paul Newman person. I think that's kind of a transition that happens. Is that, Well, so like in this, you know, Redford's the ingenue, you know. Exactly. He's a bit of a dummy. Right. You know, Newman is a little more of an, uh, an adult acquired taste. But for a teenage girl, Robert Redford... And his peak was just irresistible. So dreamy. I mean, this is literally, it is it is the Ocean's Eleven. He is the Brad Pitt. And then Paul Newman is the George Clooney. Yeah. So this is just like the Ur heist movie. Um, obviously, there had been all kinds of gangster con films in the 1930s, which this film, which is also set in the 1930s, is referencing. But in terms of like modern day Hollywood pop, heist films this is the urtext it's kind of like a weird combo of being in many ways very realistic which we'll talk about in a minute and also just being this really kind of light-hearted caper kind of movie is it's kind of fascinating to see that it won like so many bajillions of oscars because it is just like it's so fun and it like moves really fast and it's got this chirpy soundtrack and everyone's just really charming um but it is kind of based on an era 
of crime that is a bit easier easier to kind of nostalgify and doesn't require a bunch of high-tech nonsense like Ocean's Eleven. Well, I was looking at the Wikipedia page today because I haven't seen the movie too recently and I wanted to refresh myself. And I was like, oh, right, of course, it takes place in the 1930s. <laughs> Which, like, if you, uh, yeah, this movie definitely takes place in the 30s. It's not like it's ambiguous at all when you watch it that that's what's happening. But it is also such a 70s movie. It really is. In every way. And um, I think the aesthetic is really interesting in the sense that it is clearly referencing all of those old 30s things both in terms of like the set design and especially the costume and like the color scheme and it's got yes. in between each section of the movie there's kind of title cards that are illustrated like old tiny yeah. illustrations which are so much fun um edith head did the costumes and won the oscar for them for the eighth time yes <laughs> her eighth oscar <laughs> um, and they're great but it they really illustrate the concept that like all period costumes in movies ever are inevitably sort of um they they, they tie into the contemporary yes, fashions correct because like with edith head as well she literally was alive and designing film costumes during the period this movie takes place in because she started designing movie costumes in the 1920s but like she was designing costumes and was well aware of what clothes looked like then. And she was like, this film is going to be a contemporary 1930s movie where everything looks slightly like the 70s. So yeah, like the most egregious example of this, to my memory, is the 1970s Great Gatsby movie where they had Ralph Lauren do the costumes and the costumes literally bear no resemblance to the 1920s whatsoever. They are so clearly just contemporary costumes in the 70s. I've also starring Robert Redford and famously a terrible movie. <laughs> I think I saw that on a bus on a school trip and I was just like what is why why is this happening? It's definitely kind of a school trip kind of movie. Yeah. The most 70s thing about this in terms of the aesthetic is definitely Robert Redford's hair though. It has that volume. Yes, which is not a 30s thing at all. I but I think all of this kind of speaks to the project of the movie, which clearly they were paying a lot of attention to those earlier sources. The director, George Roy Hill, who also directed Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid a few years earlier, talked about looking at the earlier gangster films and noticing that there were almost no extras on the street in a lot of the sort of exterior scenes. And so you have almost no extras in any of those kinds of scenes in this movie. And it does have this weird kind of empty quality when you're outside in it. Like it has this sort of ghost town feeling, I think, even though yeah, it's and it kind of looks like cities. it's filmed on a set in a quite unselfconscious yes. way, which works for this movie because it's literally about people being fake, but it's also something that is generally avoided in most movies. They do not want you to know that they're, they're working on a set. <laughs> right. And so they're aping these things from the past and it has this slightly false feel to it and then there's the elements that feel very current that are now dated to us but wouldn't have been at the time obviously that make you very aware that you're watching a movie like it's clearly designed that way buoyed up by the tremendous charisma and star power of the two leads they're just so good they're so charming but um to kind of go into the plot for people who have not watched this movie or not watched it recently 
There is no need to be concerned about spoilers because, like any good movie about a heist or a con artistry, the plot is incomprehensible to describe. So basically, (laughs) the gist is um, Robert Redford plays a young grifter who um, is very skillful, but he's not like really a great long-term planner. And he moves to Chicago to learn the art of the long con from an established con artist who's played by Paul Newman, who becomes his mentor, but he's kind of a bit of a drunk and he's a bit of a ne'er-do-well and he's kind of exhausted. So you've got that classic dynamic. And um, their plan is they put together this multi-layered scheme to con a crime boss out of half a million dollars by setting up a fake betting parlour. And it's populated by dozens of lower level con men who are all essentially acting as extras and they've all got minor parts to play. But it's not really an ensemble movie. It's like these two guys in the foreground plus their nemesis um, and a bunch of people they've helped, which is literally how these kind of early mid 20th century scams would work it is wild that this was a whole subculture at the time (laughs) yeah and there are i think well it's interesting because i don't want to give away how the it all kind of works at the end because it is very confusing i think when it's happening right away on first watch but it's not actually that complicated um and it's really really ingenious the way the whole thing is set up so when you're watching it initially, it is kind of just like, I have no idea what's happening and it doesn't matter because these people are very charming. But if you do actually plot the whole thing out, it isn't that complex and it's very smart. So like I was reading the plot summary on Wikipedia and I was like, this is written terribly and it's not like, what the fuck does any of this mean? But once I actually thought about it, I was like, oh no, this isn't that hard to work out it's fine. And that's part of what makes the movie so good. Yeah. There's lots of kind of razzmatazz on the surface, but it's actually like a really basic trick in the middle. Yeah. And it has no themes. So (laughs) it's not attempting anything deep, which is fine. Yeah. The key conflict is, will the two boys still be friends at the end? Will they betray each other or will the boys be friends? (laughs) So (laughs) really good conflict. Because this is spiritually a sequel to Butch Cassidy, that's all you care about. You just want their love to remain pure. And, you know, whatever else is going on is just window dressing for that. And indeed, Robert Redford does have a little bit of a not even romance, you could say, with the one female character in this movie. And it turns out, spoiler alert, that she's a bad guy, and Paul Newman saves him from her. And I was just like, oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) It's just too good. It's too good. At some point, someone who makes uh, one of these big kind of Ocean's Eleven movies will work out that instead of trying to simultaneously have a female lead who is sidelined and also have a homoerotic partnership between the two leads, you can just have like a female character that's like not the love interest, so you don't have to sideline her in favour of the main relationship between the two guys. Like, you know, (laughs) at some point, you can just have a woman. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. One of the interesting interesting things about how the movie came into being, though, was that it was basically originally written as a vehicle for one person, which wound up being Mr. Redford. Like, the Newman character was supposed to be this old, schlubby, sort of has-been guy. And then they decided to bring him on and obviously then we're like oh we have to make this character much more prominent and the character in the movie is such a charming and seductive 
figure and the whole appeal of the film is their relationship and it's really funny to think of the movie without those components i think it still would have been good and entertaining but it's just one of those like hollywood development things where you think wow you were saved by yourself somehow. Well, it's also kind of what happens when you have genuine stars, which is, I know something that's kind of talked about a lot in kind of current Hollywood terms, that there's far fewer people who are legitimately stars in the same way as Robert Redford, and you're more likely to just be someone who's very famous, but can't necessarily carry something on just kind of pure charisma and skill. And the way that things like this movie come about is because you have someone where you're just like, well, we know we just need more of this guy in the movie, so let's just fucking write him in. And then you, the result is something amazing. And obviously that's not always a winner, but it's not the kind of thing nowadays where it's like, wow, Chris Pratt, let's write a bigger role for him to showcase his amazing talents. Like, okay, whatever. He's, you know, he's a guy with a jaw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one wants more of him. So that we don't need that. I mean, there's like this amazing scene in a train in this film where Paul Newman is sort of... Uh, getting acquainted with one of the marks, I think, um, by butting into a poker game. Mm -hmm. And I like poker, so that's like a fun scene for me because I understand the whole of what's going on. Yeah, I and, go into a coma whenever there's a card game in a movie. I'm just like, I can't even, oh. there's no way I'm even going to attempt to know what this means. <laughs> well, but that scene, even if you're not following the actual cards. Well, yeah, that's the, the trick of a good, so, yeah. Right, he's so charismatic that it almost doesn't matter. And that's the kind of stuff that with a lesser actor in that role would not be nearly as interesting and is the kind of thing, as you say, like now just doesn't get made anymore. I remember when Solo came out, like the big scene where Han wins the Millennium Falcon is over a card game and everyone was complaining at the time, like, this is a big scene happening over a card game, but no one in the real world understands the rules of this card game because it's not a real card game that exists, which is a, a, a problem, but also B, like, I think Alden Ehrenreich is a great actor and will make a lot of great movies, but uh, Solo was not one of them, and he was not very good in it. Similarly, Donald Glover is great, but even he in that scene, like, you were just like, what is going on? Like, why am I supposed to care about this, right? And there are so many scenes in this film where in theory they could not just be a sort of mundane or not that interesting but because you have these like titans you're just like oh this yeah. is so fun and also you know a poker game may as well be like an alien space game for all the hell i know i'm never gonna retain the rules of that so <laughs> if you've managed to film it well it makes no difference like i mean literally today i saw an episode of star trek deep space nine where one of the subplots was about people playing this like ridiculous fictional star trek roulette you know and it was great i did not need to understand it and clearly neither did the writers I mean, this, the solo problem was that... Well, the solo problem was that it was bad. <laughs> they were just, like, showing the cards like it was supposed to mean something to you. And I was like, I don't... What? Like, what is what is this? This is not... And no. even the most intensive Star Wars nerds did not know. Because the actual canon of that game... I had to write an article about this. The actual canon of that game is very unclear. So, um... But anyway, back to the sting. <laughs> just the head Speaking... <laughs> We have to exercise our, our solo feelings. Um, yeah, speaking of the train, I have a little section in our well-organized planning document um, about the historical background of 20th century con men. Because if there's two things I like, it's fun crimes. Not murdery crimes, but fun crimes. 
and history. And this combines the both. So I just thought I'd give the audience some info on the ecosystem that allowed all of these con artists to flourish. Because I think we think of fun con artists as kind of a retro thing. And there is a reason for that. Every generation has its con artists. Our current ones are unfortunately Silicon Valley and they are destroying the planet, which makes them much less funny to make movies about. However, the reason why you have this situation in this movie with these seemingly elaborate and very fictional seeming slang terms and teams of people wearing costumes and using props, this sprung up because of kind of the way that business was functioning in the US at this point. So it's like you have loads of people who are traveling long distances on the newly built railroads to set up businesses in random places. And then information was just traveling much slower. Um, So it gives so much opportunity for someone to just make up a fake identity and also have loads of marks for people who are either trying to start their own business or just have a bunch of cash on hand or already part of organized crime in some way because obviously there was like a fuck ton of mob stuff going on in you know 1930s america so as long as you had lots of amazing skills to be charming and you had some you know lessons from your literal paul newman mentor you could get on the train and you could use kind of the classic con artist strategies to go and make a ton of money and like basically you just find people who either are gullible and stupid enough to think that they can fall for a get rich quick scheme and actually get rich quick or someone who's already kind of crooked and you think you can persuade them to get in on your scam and then scam them, which is what Silicon Valley is currently doing now. But that is, it is all to do with kind of railroads and infrastructure is the reason why there were so many around them and how they kind of died out by the time we had everyone having a phone. That's really interesting. I did not know any of that. Although reading about crime from the past is wild. Yes, it's literally all like no one has a phone, so you can't double check the person you just married is actually a duke. Right. Some... Of our listeners will be aware of the, um, I think it was the 1919 World Series, was is the famous World Series that was rigged. Um, the White Sox were playing against the Reds and the White Please Sox. Please tell me more. I, have not aw- I am not aware of baseball history. <laughs> so um, it wound up being called, like, they were referred to as the Black Sox team because they they basically threw the Super Bowl, the, not the Super Bowl, the World Series, to the Reds, who were a much, much worse team. And they did wind up getting caught, although it took like years for this whole thing to play out in court. Um, I think a couple of them kind of wound up feeling guilty about it and sort of confessed. And then also the FBI, I think it was the FBI, or maybe it was just the police. The paper trail of all where all the money had been going was bad. Um, So the law enforcement did figure this out, but there's an amazing book about this it's called eight men out reading about it is wild because all basically the way they eventually caught them was that all of these bets were being placed like huge bets on the wrong like the wrong team right and then that team would win the game and it was ridiculous that this was happening and it was this like massive thing that was going on all over the country and they would like send telegraphs to each other and then there was no trail and like people were just making like zillions of dollars and like in hotel rooms just like being past cash and again this is an example where they didn't actually get away with it but they really could have and you read this and you're just like oh my god like how did all of this happen and the number of things that presumably did occur and no one knows about them is kind of surreal 
And the ones that turned it into success stories, because like the backstory of the entire Ford Motor Company is just Henry Ford telling people that he could build a car and then people giving him a ton of basically Silicon Valley investor company money and then him starting the Ford Motor Company. And it was like, you didn't have any kind of collateral to back up whatever the fuck you were doing with your car that didn't exist. So, um, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we do have this now. It's like the Anna Delvies of the world. There's lots of Oh, scams. yeah. I mean, there was always scams everywhere um it's just like when it comes to the long con they kind of evolve with technology so now for the really in-depth kind of you know you've got like nigerian print scams are the ones that everyone's going to be aware of but i am sure there are still people literally on the street doing lost wallet scams because occasionally you will hear an anecdote of someone falling for one and it's like wow it's just like robert redford in the sting (laughs) you (laughs) fell for one that's probably 200 years old and they still work because um Everyone, it turns out, is a dupe, and that's how human nature works. Yes. And what's so satisfying about this movie is that the Mark is this just, like, horrible rich man. Yeah, that is the trick. You have to find just a real shithead and then aim some charming people at him and be like, crime? It's fine. I mean, it's the same thing with Ocean's Eleven. Like, they're stealing from a horrible casino owner. Yes. What could be less morally, you know, unappealing than stealing from a dude who owns the Bellagio and is also an asshole. I'm honestly surprised there's not more kind of heist movies on the go at the moment because it is so relatable to want to steal a bunch of money from rich people. And currently the only really big heist franchise that's on is Now You See Me, which I would like to say I I enjoy tremendously, but those are the worst films that I enjoy. They are just appalling. They're they're very (laughs) bad and they don't make sense. They're about a bunch of stage magicians that steal stuff together, but the films never clarify whether the magic is real or not, which is the craziest creative decision. (laughs) But um, yeah, I have bad taste and I love those movies. It's fine. It's fine. I have not seen them, nor oh, will I. no, you will not. And you would not be impressed <laughs> by their, I completely admit, appalling quality. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the Robin Hood thing should be a very appealing subgenre right now. It's like how we have all these space movies because everyone wants to leave the planet and die in, you know, the void. Uh which is the the overwhelming feeling of the country right now, nay, the world. But similarly, you would think that, that this would be popular, but maybe they're, they're coming in like three years. Who knows? Yeah. But this film certainly did influence like all of the recent ones, as we were saying. Ocean's Eleven is the most obvious example, I think, in terms of like literally, as you said, the main pairing is so yeah. clearly, and also kind of the the structure of this as well, where it's kind of it goes it goes through kind of the various sections, almost like an instruction manual, like the different parts of a long con where you kind of set them up and knock them down, whatever. Um, and then there's sort of like a big kind of exciting reveal, which is how it happens in Ocean's Eleven and Inception and all heist movies. Um, I don't actually know if this is the first one that did that, but it is kind of it now feels like a really intuitive way to tell this story because. Um, it's like it's always fun to watch them do all the con stuff at first but it's doubly fun when there's a big reveal and you find out there's been a double cross all along (laughs) yes also just I mean I'm thinking um, obviously Logan Lucky is a take on in many ways on Ocean's Eleven which is take on the sting but like that also has a duo as does Ocean's Eight obviously but it really helps to have the like two characters in the center I think 
for a movie like this because then they talk to each other and you know you have your your repartee not that adam driver's repartee and logan lucky is very wordy but you know they have a vibe i mean that was kind of one of the issues with widows which we never did an episode on in the end um but like I mean, the reason why Widows wasn't big was obviously because it did get screwed from marketing. And I totally agree that that movie should have been way more popular than it was purely because it got screwed. But at the same time, when I watched it, I wasn't really super into it because it was kind of, it wasn't one thing or the other. So it was this really like serious, intensive drama with very like intense emotional roles and lots of dark themes. And at the same time, it was very explicitly a team heist movie. And I think that combination of factors, it just didn't work for me at all, even though I was like, well, I love all of the actors. Good job. It's a very stylish film. But you cannot really have that sort of fun heist satisfaction when you're also really upset because the main character's, you know, husband's dead. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't hate watching Widows as I was watching it, but I definitely don't think it really worked at all. Uh, I thought the acting was very good, but I totally agree that it was basically a heist movie it didn't want to be a heist movie and seemed to avoid dealing with that whenever possible and then the actual heist itself at the end is just like very stupid and not interesting or fun you know not that they all have to be exactly tonally the same of course but it did give me actually watching it gave me a lot of appreciation for movies like this and oceans 11 because it's really hard to write something like this. This isn't a deep film, as I said, doesn't really have themes, but it's it started to me like a perfect best picture winner in a lot of ways, especially from a sort of bygone era, because it is like a big Hollywood thing that is undeniably just like an incredible entertainment. And it's got big movie stars and it's just unimpeachably like a great film and it's not gonna have anything particularly you know meaningful to say about the state of the world but that's fine and the degree of difficulty of pulling something like this off is unbelievably high and i think that because it's done so lightly that can be forgotten while watching it well i read an interview with the producer um who obviously the producers are the ones who pick up the best picture award at the oscars and the producer basically said when i got this script i immediately started rehearsing my oscar speech which i realized <laughs> was really conceited but i was right <laughs> yeah, i mean yeah I, also as someone who had an internship in college reading like slush pile scripts they're so bad they're just so bad. And if you get something like this, I mean, it's game over, right? It's just so exciting. I was also talking to my mom this weekend about this sort of um, trend in comedy recently. And like, this obviously isn't a comedy film per se, but it's very funny. And we were talking about the fact that um, I think comedy films now are sort of on an upswing back towards uh, highly scripted movies. Like the death of Stalin, for instance, which obviously wasn't like financially successful, but that kind of thing where everything is actually, all the jokes are actually written. I mean, do you think that's partly connected to SNL? Because at the point when there were so many of these movies that were coming out of the SNL cast and were really good, that was the point when the SNL cast was actually good. Whereas now Sashi and Alive is fucking appalling. It's unwatchable unless John Mulaney is somehow involved. Well, no. What I was going to say was. (laughs) 
for a long time, Apatow was basically running comedy in Hollywood. And there were a lot of of SNL people in those movies, but the problem with all of them was that they were completely just like improvised. And some of them would be funny, but all of them were like way too long and way too baggy. And a lot of them weren't that funny. And I think we're moving back toward things that are actually like written down. (laughs) Um, And I think for a while there was this sort of view that the really funny things were the things that just got made up as you were acting. And I, my hope, and I sense that this is the case is that people are starting to have more respect for things that are actually like constructed jokes. I mean, it is always wild to me the number of people that seemingly think that stand-up is just sort of rift, you know? (laughs) Because stand-up comics do write their material, generally. (laughs) And this is kind of the difference between, like, when Louis C.K. was the biggest stand-up in the world, right? And obviously all of his stuff was totally written, but it felt like it wasn't. Like, it felt like he was just kind of riffing and just saying stuff. And he was very good at it. Like, I watched that stuff when it was coming out. And I really liked it. It was really funny, but it was very shaggy. And now you watch John Mulaney and he is so obviously like every single word has been precisely, you know, written down. Yeah. In his performance. And he has written. like choreographed kind of facial expressions and the way he yeah. kind of fills up the stage and stuff. And for me, like I am very encouraged by this because i like some improvised stuff can be fun, but I much more prefer that kind of structured, fast-paced comedy. Like Thirty Rock is like that, and I like that kind of thing. But I think that it all kind of ties into the concept of like the writing of humorous and light entertainment as actually a very skilled thing. And for a while, people weren't really thinking of it that way. But doing a comedy or doing a heist movie or even or even like an action film that's meant to just be like entertaining actually is really hard. <laughs> and um, I again, with something like this, there's a reason that it is still being watched so frequently so many years later. Like if you look at the best picture winners from other years from a long time ago, like some of them definitely are still watched, but Many of them are not. And I think this is like, if you're listening to this and you don't really watch many old movies or haven't really seen many at all, I so recommend watching this as like a sort of entree. It is timeless. Right? Because it's just so much fun. And, you know, I hadn't seen anything like this when I was that age, except Ocean's Eleven and they're really similar. And I just thought it was so amazing. And I think that to be able to construct something that's that lasts that long and is still just so fun is like really impressive. It's just great. I really love it. Uh, we also should briefly talk about the music, which yes. is very interesting. <laughs> yeah, either you know the music from this or you don't. Yes, um, it's the entertainer. It is now a ringtone of a song. It's actually anachronistic for the period of the film, but I think that probably it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter. Obviously that's not a problem, but it's also now so kind of connected with this film that I don't think people will even realize that. Um, film set in the thirties, the music is The Entertainer by Joplin, which is this ragtime song, which is obviously kind of music that was just coming in kind of pre-jazz sort of turn of the 20th century kind of time, like 1910. 
And it's just this really chirpy sort of like jangly piano track and it just works perfectly within the tone of the film. And I didn't realize this until Morgan and I were, as we previously said, consulting Wikipedia. I promised I did do more research than this, but I was like, I'll check Wikipedia. And apparently this um, this was one of several factors during the mid-1970s, which led to a massive uptick in the popularity of ragtime and um, getting kind of Joplin inducted into the whatever music hall of fame. So um, yeah, cool. Weird, a weird trend. <laughs> uh, also, apparently the soundtrack for this thing was the top, at the top of the Billboard chart for five weeks in 1974. I would love for something like that to happen now because it's the kind of thing where someone would play it at the club at some point. You would be in a bar and then someone would, you know, they'd pause like fucking Maroon 5 or whatever and it'd be like, we're just going to have like good two and a half minutes of uh, Joplin now. And you have their jangly ragtime track and it would just be hilarious. (laughs) This is also always so funny to me because when I was growing up, we would have in the summer the ice cream truck would come around the neighborhood <laughs> yes true that's true story and we were rarely allowed to purchase anything from the ice cream truck but it did come around and um the song that the ice cream truck played literally every time it came by was the entertainer <laughs> i was like and it got really annoying after a while like really fucking annoying and i feel like even here in new york there used to be one by my old apartment that would go by at like one in the morning and I was like, you are not an ice cream truck. There is something else happening here. But, um... I mean, that's it's a classic crime vehicle. Here in Glasgow, we had an entire gang war which was exclusively built around ice cream trucks. So, um, yes. you know. Oh, that was clearly what was going on. But, like, that is the ice cream truck song. So, hearing it in this context is very funny to me. I realize it is a real piece of music, but in my mind, there can be no other association <laughs> than the ice cream truck. And so it's just, it's just very funny. Um, But used to great effect in this film, even though it is totally not the right period at all, which contributes to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, where, like, it's all this sort of period in quotes stuff that isn't actually designed to It's kind of like when you go to a vintage diner and it's got that 1950s vibe, but it's really fake. Yes. Yeah. In a good way. (laughs) In a charming way. Well, and as you said, the whole movie is about people being fake, so it's fine. The only real authentic thing is that they do love each other, so. And the nose thing became an iconic thing, too. If you've watched it, you'll know what I mean. There's no way to convey this (laughs) on a podcast. But, uh, yeah, this is a great film, and uh, you should watch it if you haven't seen it. Very rewatchable, also. Yes, I've seen it twice. Um, yeah, I watched this as an adult and then I kind of rewatched it a couple of years later and was like, this film is still great, partly because you cannot remember what the fuck is going on, right. um, which is the mark of, of, of a great heist film. Yeah. But yeah, before we get into what we are doing next week, um, although I'm sure some of you will be able to infer from upcoming releases, we have a cool Patreon announcement. Um, we have selected our next $100 tier movie. Um, for those who have not checked up on our Patreon before, basically we have a bunch of tiers and, um, if you pay one or three dollars, you just get a subscription to all of the stuff that we have on there. But if you pay more, you can kind of buy a specific film from us. And the hundred dollar tier level is, I realize a lot of money, but in the past people have paid us to watch Twilight and all three of the Star Wars prequels. 
um, which we recorded podcasts about. And then if you're on Patreon, you also get DVD audio commentary to watch along with us. Our next one is Breaking the Trend for Bad Movies. It is in fact a good movie, nay, the best movie. It is Captain America, the Winter Soldier. So if someone does um, decide to pay us that money or a group of someone's band together, then we will be recording an episode on Captain America, the Winter Soldier and also a Patreon exclusive um, audio commentary track. We are beyond experts in this film. Passionate would be an understatement. (laughs) I think that combined our greatest legacy on the internet is the fan fiction Steve Rogers at 100 which is one of the most read things on the entire archive of our own. Yeah, it's been read like a quarter of a million times and that is more than anything I will ever publish professionally will ever be read. (laughs) Yes, I've accepted this. I was like, I could publish like best-selling books and still that fan fiction will be my most read work and that's fine. I'm very happy for that to be my legacy. Yeah, 2014 was an incredible time. So much happened on the internet. There was just... It was wild. Our friend Charlotte referred to this film as the Citizen Kane of Tumblr at that time. And I do believe that is an accurate description. Sheer poetry. And God, there are so many levels to this movie. You know, there is so much background. There is so much historical research that resulted among a whole subculture of millennial women as a result of watching this film. I also will say there is a an exhibit opening very soon uh, at the Brooklyn historical society on like the queer history of Brooklyn. I can't remember the title, but it's easily Googleable. And that museum is either, it's either located, I've never actually been there. It's either located on or something about the exhibit title was about the docks in Brooklyn, which if you were on Tumblr in 2014, you will remember that that was a meme. And I literally sent this to a friend of mine and was like, the docks. And she freaked out. And I was like, it'll never end. It's just going to go on forever. But also, I, I, now you've told me about this, I'm very curious about the curators of that gallery exhibit and to what extent they are either currently aware, I would guess not at all, unless one of them is a millennial woman, or if they're just going to be very surprised by the clientele of that <laughs> exhibit. Just a lot of Captain America fans who are like, look, I'm doing some research for my 200,000 word historical fanfic. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so do us a favor, listeners. And pay us to do this, because as opposed to the last times where I was, like, dreading being forced to watch Twilight, this would be a true pleasure for both of us. Yeah, and also, neither of us have watched it in a few years, I don't think. So um, while obviously we both do have it memorized, um, it'll be kind of a fresh experience. Yeah, so consider that. And thank you for listening this week in the meantime. We appreciate it very much. If you do want to subscribe to our Patreon at any tier, you can find that at www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find my writing on The Daily Dot, where um, I have just published an article about how Captain Marvel appears to be uh, pro-US military propaganda. Um, so that'll be some fun, light reading before next week's episode on Captain Marvel. Yes. Which I do actually think we're both going to enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but I do think it will be interesting in that respect. There will be a lot to talk about. Uh, I am on Twitter at ML Davies. Uh, you can find the podcast uh, at our website, 
overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.